Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, Australia in the 1950s was a nation struggling to understand its own good fortune. People lived in spacious homes on wide streets where fit-looking men delivered milk daily to housewives who were presumably inside flicking through catalogues of the latest electrical conveniences like fridges and television sets. Barry Humphreys turned 16 at the dawn of the decade and his theatrical tendencies in this uniformly drab time drew him to iconoclastic experimental theatre. But his disdain for conformity wasn't as profound as that of his peers and successors. By the 1970s, he could clearly see that leftism that the leftism of Australian culture was a far greater threat to good sense and good taste than the unsophisticated optimism of the 1950s had ever been. From this, Sir Les Patterson, the fictional godfather of the Australian Labor Party, was born. Conservative liberals had been in power for over 20 years. They felt they could say this without much risk of having to go home. But through the mists, Australians were glimpsing their own Camelot. Our new socialist, King Arthur, was a very tall lawyer from Cabramatta, eager to walk the world stage. I'm proud to say that I, Les Patterson, was an integral part of the Whitlam Camelot. If you think of Gough as King Arthur, and the round table with old Margaret there as Queen Guinevere. Guinevere? I was Merlin. I was the think tank. I was the ideas man. And I came to him and I said one day, and he locked the door and he said, what is it this time, Les? I said, I need money and I need telephone numbers, cough. Because this is for a special project. It's the Disabled Black Lesbian Puppet Workshop. He looked a bit strange when I said that. He said, you need big bickies for that, Les? I said, yes, the Black Disabled Lesbian uh, Women's Puppet Workshop. And he said, now look, Les, he said, he started to write the check. He said, who's this really for? <laughs> I said, Goff. I said, it's for me. He said, what are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to piss it up against the wall. He said, Les, you're an honest man. I'll double it. Sir Les's excesses should have been a warning that a real culture of corruption, not to mention a corruption of culture, was bearing fruit on the left side of politics. And so it came to pass. In 2018, Hannah Gadsby, a Tasmanian comedian with such meticulous postmodern qualifications that she is more famous for being gay than funny, said Humphreys, quote, loves those who hold power, hates vulnerable minorities and has completely lost the ability to read the room. That's not a comedian. That's an irrelevant, inhumane dick biscuit of the highest order. Well, Sir Les would have been surprised by that comment the bulge that famously extended down his trouser leg during stage performances was more the shape of a baguette than a biscuit. 
And on Saturday night, hours after news broke of Humphreys passing away, Sir Les's heir apparent for obnoxiousness, Victorian Premier Dan Andrews posted a series of tweets ending with, most famously, he performed for the Queen Elizabeth II's Golden Jubilee Royal Pop Concert. But at the end of the day, he was a boy from Kew with big dreams and he achieved them. No, Dan. Most famously, he exposed the narcissism of leftist political grifters. And more recently, he was ostracised by the humourless wowsers of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival who, like Andrews, think transgenderism is a teenage condition worthy of counselling and medical intervention and was not, as Humphreys thought, a mere fashion for mutilation. Humphreys' greatest creation, Edna Everidge, evolved from a suburban housewife to what Humphreys himself called a gigastar. But not even that meteoro meteoric transformation matches how much Australia changed in that time. Leftists have taken over not just politics, but the bureaucracy, education, the media, and in, in Victoria at least, the police force. Humphreys was bewildered by the tenacious way the wowser remained a distinct Australian character, more powerful and prominent than ever in the age of political correctness. Sir Les and Dame Edna died with him, but there is no shortage of material now for a new generation of satirical cultural attaches and ambitious celebrities to lampoon. Sadly though, the cross-dressing part of the act has lost its edge. Rest in peace, Barry Humphreys. Over the next few days, we will bring you stories from people who either suffered serious injuries soon after being injected with an experimental COVID vaccine, or who are grieving the loss of a child or loved one. Some estimates say there are thousands of such people in Australia, and there is a growing movement to recognise their circumstances and even compensate them. Unlike the almost militaristic way our governments responded to the COVID virus, locking us down and reporting nightly about latest case numbers and deaths, few people in authority are now interested in helping or even knowing about the many people who are suffering trauma merely because they trusted the government's assurances that the vaccines were safe and effective. These are ordinary Australians whose lives were close to destroyed by adverse reactions that made them unable to work, let alone pursue legal or medical remedies. Well, I'm joined now by Inga Doyle, a personal trainer from the Sunshine Coast who got the Pfizer jab in June and July in 2021. The first jab didn't cause much uh, pain or stress, but after the second jab, uh, she immediately felt some swelling and increasing fatigue for the next two weeks. And then on the 14th day, suffered serious stabbing pains. Things got worse from there. Inga joins me now. Inga, welcome. Hi, thank you. Inga, tell us what happened after two weeks after your second jab, uh, which was in June, July of 2021. What happened two weeks later? 
I um, got a sudden sharp pain in my lower abdomen that went through into my back. And um, initially I, I wasn't too concerned, but it got worse and worse and worse. And, and closer to midnight, my partner took me up to the hospital and they did some scans and they found an uh, aortic dissection okay, in my abdominal aorta. What, so what's an aortic dissection? An aortic dissection is a tear of the lining inside the aorta, the main vessel of the heart. So it's quite serious. And it was a big tear right down to the iliac branches in my case. And what, 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 what happened then? I mean, what, I mean that, that's a frightening diagnosis to be receiving. Uh, was it, were you reassured that everything would be okay at that point? Initially, they started off by doing lots and lots of testing and to try to figure out why this had happened. Uh, and found sorry to interrupt, when you say they, where did you go for this treatment? Uh, I was at Sunshine Coast University Hospital, which right. is close to where I live, yeah. Yep, carry on. Yeah, and they did lots and lots of testing. During that testing, they found that I had an enlarged heart as well. Um, and they scanned my whole body to look for anything that could have caused this, but um, they didn't find anything. Did but, anyone at any point ask you, have you been jabbed lately? No. Seriously? Not they in didn't the beginning, ask? no. Okay. Um, by this stage, it was, it was reasonably well known that there might be a connection between these uh, so-called vaccines and heart conditions. How did you feel? Did, were you making that con con connection at the time? Not straight away. We did ask some of the doctors and specialists that I did see through that initial time if it could be the vaccine, because I told them I had it only two weeks earlier. And they all either got a really blank stare, blank face, or they say, no, 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 it can't be the vaccine. This vac the vaccine doesn't work like that. So then what happened? You've got the aortic dissection, which is serious. Is that, a, is that a, an operable condition? Did they tell you, you they, that could be fixed? Initially, they said they usually treat dissections with just medication and you go home and you basically live a life where you keep your heart rate and blood pressure really low, which didn't quite suit me. But well, that's devastating <laughs> in itself. You're a personal trainer. You're a former triathlete. I mean, it's a bit insensitive to be telling someone, oh, you know, your heart's not working, you'd better stay home and sit down. Is that, is that essentially what they were saying? Pretty much. I was loaded up with different tablets, medications, and I, after a week they sent me home after plenty of scans and tests. And um, I was home for about two weeks, and then they wanted me back to the hospital for a follow-up scan. And um, for me, when I went back... I only made the scan and got inside my front door home after the scan and I got a phone call and they asked me to come straight back into emergency because the dissection had um, uh, stretched up a little further and it was really close to my renal artery. So, and what did that imply? That means it was now really life-threatening. So unless I had emergency surgery, it would basically kill me. <sighs> And so you were rushed into surgery. How long was the surgery for? The surgery took 12 hours. So it was a big surgery. Serious. Yeah. By this stage, so when you recovered how, from that surgery, how did you feel? I was not in a very good way. I ended up with complete organ failure. I had no kidneys, no liver, no bowels, no saliva in my mouth. I was basically hooked up to machines to keep me alive. You would have been in ICU by that stage.
Yes, I was in for a couple of weeks in ICU. What, Inga, what was going through your head at this point? I mean, at this point, I assume nobody had told you why this was happening to you no. and whether or not you would survive. How mm. were you coping? It was a real nightmare. I was in so much pain. I was on very heavy drugs. I thought I was going to die many times. I never thought I was going to make it out of there. It You're a mother horrendous. of two grown-up kids in their yeah. early 20s. Uh, they must have been visiting you in hospital um, absolutely terrified that they are about to lose their mother. They were. Initially, in the beginning of all this, no one was allowed in, so I was completely on my own, and that was really scary. Uh, but then, um, uh, yeah, after the surgery, they were allowed to come and see me. So, yeah, it was a very scary time for them seeing me. I, I was kind of pretty much out of it most of the time. Um, yeah, not so good. Yeah, this is a horrifying story. At what mm. point did it become clear to you that this was related to the Pfizer jab that you'd had in July? It was myself and my partner who spent a lot of time starting to read and doing his own little research from home and figuring things out. And um, he did get in touch with um, a professor in Australia who he asked the question, could this be the vaccine? Because he did read something and he drew the connection. And then this professor explained to us, yes, this could definitely be the vaccine because this, this and this and explained how it would have happened. So how long were you in the ICU for? I was in ICU for two weeks in total and then I was moved on to a ward. Okay. So that was uh, almost two, well, a year and a half ago. Um, yes. What has happened since then how's, and how's your health now? I am a lot better than I was at the very beginning. I was in hospital for quite a few weeks. When I came home initially, I was not very good. I couldn't even walk outside. I basically spent a few weeks in bed. And uh, right now, I've come a long way. I am a lot better. But only um, about three months ago now, I um, had a really high D-dimer test, a reading checking for blood clots, and it came back very high. So they did a search or scans from my body again, and they found a massive lung clot in my right lung. So I'm dealing with that now, and I've also having, um, I've recently had a lot of chest pains and shortness of breath again, kind of a little bit out of the blue. And I was back in ED only about three weeks ago, just to be checked out and tested again. Um, on top of that, I'm living with um, kidney issues. My kidneys are only working about 35% around there. So they've been damaged permanently since the surgery and with everything else that's been going on. All this for a so-called vaccine that you probably didn't even need. No. Were you coerced into taking the jab? I took the vaccine because I thought I was doing the right thing. I had no idea it wasn't a vaccine. As we know them. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, what gave you the impression? Did you, I mean, did you see, uh, you know, ministers and chief health officers reassuring everyone that it was safe, the words are safe and effective? Mm -hmm. um, did you see that and think, well, I can trust those people, I'll go and get jabbed? Exactly. I did trust those people. I did not even think twice that I couldn't trust them. I did not think for a second that anybody in a situation with power like that would lie and deceive so many people and push something that's not safe. Did you ever think you were vulnerable to the virus itself? No. I've always been very healthy. I've rarely get a cold. 
I'm the sort of person, if I get a cold, I'm better in a couple of days. It's, yeah. So I what's the prognosis for you now, Inga? What, how's your life looking and, and what, what are you hoping to, uh, to, to do in the future? Well, my life as an athlete is over. Mm. I can do a little bit of exercise again. Um, I have ups and downs. I have chest pains randomly. Um, and with the kidney problems I'm dealing with, that's permanent. I get tired, a lot more tired than I should be. Obviously, I'm depressed and sad often because it's basically I'm not myself anymore. I can't be who I want to be. Yeah. Well, you, you give a good impression. You look healthy and you smile yeah. a lot, I have to say. <laughs> but I imagine that uh, beneath that veneer is a, um, a person who's uh, troubled by what the government has put her through. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of people say to me, well, you look well and you're doing bits and pieces here and there. But every morning I wake up with joint pains and chest pains and, yep, it's just ongoing. It doesn't go away. What's your impression of the power of the state? I believe people in power has deceived us and I think we need a lot more strong people to speak out and try to make this right. I think they need to acknowledge that they've done something wrong. They might have been lied to initially as well, but by now pretty much they all should know that it's not safe, it's not effective, it needs to be stopped and we need to be, it need to be recognised that we are all injured. And there needs to be some sort of compensation for people like yourself. When you say uh, there needs to be strong people, Inga, I think you are one of them and I hope you find solace in people like yourself who are fighting for justice. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, -E, or follow A-D-H on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Damien Khoury, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and of course the great Alan Jones by going to adh.tv or downloading our app to your phone or television, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7pm. Good night.